Good morning. I'd like you to join me in your Bibles in James chapter 2. We're continuing to look this morning at verses 14 to 26. This is considered one of the most difficult passages in the Bible. It's the passage that Martin Luther had a hard time swallowing. Because Paul says in Romans 3.28, a man is justified by faith apart from works. And James says in chapter 2 and verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Sounds like they're contradicting each other. So how do we rectify these two passages? Well, I think it's important to remember from the outset who the writer is. It's James. He's been called the New Testament man from Missouri. He's the guy who's always saying, show me. And the book of Romans is a doctrinal masterpiece, laying out in logical chronology the gospel. James is really not a doctrinal writing. In fact, if you look for doctrine in James, you're not going to find much. He only mentions Jesus twice. He never mentions his cross, never mentions the resurrection, never even mentions the Holy Spirit. But see, that's not James' intent. James is addressing people who have already heard the message of the gospel, and they already claim to believe the gospel. You see, James' emphasis is not on knowing the truth. He assumes you know the truth. His emphasis is on living the truth. The one great question that James has in his mind is this. If you say that you believe like you should, then why do you behave like you shouldn't? James wants to narrow the gap between knowing and doing, between the intellectual and the practical, between my talk and my walk. You see, to James, faith is not some abstract quality separate from my behavior. James is concerned with a belief that behaves, with a creed that shows itself in my conduct, with a faith that has feet. And so James cuts right through all the pretense. He cuts through the play acting. He cuts through the outward show. He cuts through the religiosity, and he demands honesty and reality. He says things like this in chapter 1, verse 22, be doers of the word and not merely hearers. Chapter 1, verse 26, he says, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this man's religion is worthless. In chapter 3, in verse 13, he says, who among you is wise? Let him show it by his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. And in chapter 4 and verse 17, he tells us that sin is not just doing what is wrong. It's when I don't do what I know is right. So James is a straight shooter. He comes at us with both barrels. And the person he is aiming at in this passage is the person who is a professor, but not a possessor. One who professes to have faith in Christ, but his life denies it. Maybe you heard about the little boy who was playing in the backyard when the preacher paid a visit to his house. He, he, he burst in the living room 
dangling a mouse by the tail. And he said, look, Mom, it's a mouse. I banged it over the head with a broom, and then I stomped on it, and then I beat it up against the steps. And then he saw the preacher out of the corner of his eye. And he said, and then the Lord called him home. Now, that little boy made a mistake that a lot of people make. He thought he could be religious by sounding religious. But the dead mouse in his hand kind of gave him away. And there are a lot of people who say they have faith. There are a lot of people who claim to be Christians. And they have a lot of dead mice hanging in their lives to make us think otherwise. To make us think that the faith that they profess they do not really possess. And James is concerned about just such people. People who are a walking contradiction. People with big professions and little deeds. People with loud talking and silent walking. And that's the person he describes in verse 14 of this passage. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? This guy is the professor, but not the possessor. This guy says he has faith, but there's been no change in his lifestyle, no change in his actions, no change in his direction. There's no reality. There's nothing tangible, just words. And James asked two questions. Is what this guy is calling faith of any use? No. And is what this guy is calling faith really going to save him? No. Now most of what James says in this letter can be traced back to the Sermon on the Mount. The seed thoughts for all of James' ideas in this book are found in Jesus' words in Matthew, Matthew chapters 5 to seven, and this passage is no different. If we go back to Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is talking around verse 20, and he uses the analogy of trees, and he says you can tell a tree by its fruit, and you can tell a person by their fruit. And then he says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but him who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then he says this, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform miracles in your name? And Jesus is going to say, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, because I never knew you. And then Jesus gives the illustration of the man who builds his house on the rock. And the man who builds his house on the sand, and he says the rains came and the floods rose and the house on the sand was wiped away. You know what his point was? Jesus says, the one who hears my word and acts on it is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. And the man who hears my word and does not act on it is like the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. And you see, James is just reiterating what Jesus said, and that is that talk is cheap. Anybody can formulate the words, Lord, Lord. 
Anybody can claim faith. But genuine saving faith will produce fruit. And where there is no fruit, there is no faith. And then James illustrates it in verses 15 and 16, where he says, if you see your brother or sister with no clothing and no food, and all you give them is words, what use is that? This is the armchair philanthropist. He sees his brother or sister, no clothing, no food, and he says these wonderful words. Be warmly clothed and have such a great meal that you're just stuffed. And he walks away. It's almost like he has so much faith that he believes somebody else is going to do it. And what is James' point? Well, it's real simple. Words of love without the actions of love is not love. And words of faith without the actions of faith is not faith. And he spells that out in verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Faith without works is dead. The pulse of faith is not your words. It's your actions. The pulse of faith is not the tongue in your mouth. It's the tongues in your shoes. And where there is no action, there is no pulse. And where there is no pulse... There is no life. Talk is cheap. And people with dead faith typically talk more. People with dead faith typically substitute words for deeds. The priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan were steeped in religious training. But neither of them paused to assist the dying man on the side of the road. And I'm sure that each could have defended his faith quite eloquently. But neither demonstrated his faith in loving works. And both Jesus and James would agree that's dead faith. And not only is it dead, but it's also defenseless. In verse 18, he describes another man from Missouri who approaches this guy who claims to have faith but has no works. And he says, show me. And he can't do it. You see, if what you are calling faith is something you can't take to show and tell because you've got nothing to show, James says, that's not saving faith. Because while we are saved by faith alone, saving faith is never alone. Saving faith given the opportunity, will always produce fruit. And so a faith that only talks is dead. A faith that only talks is defenseless. And a faith that only talks is demonic, as he tells us in verse 19. It's demonic in the sense that the demons destined for hell have a similar faith. They believe intellectually that God is one, and they tremble. They believe about God. They believe the promises of God with their minds. They are stirred emotionally by those truths. But that's not saving faith. 
You see, saving faith is more than intellectual assent. And saving faith is more than an emotional response. Saving faith is a commitment that results in a changed life. Yes, saving faith involves your intellect because it's based on evidence. It's based on facts. Jesus came. He died. He was buried. He rose again. And yes, saving faith involves your emotions. The Bible talks about godly sorrow that leads you to repentance. But it must also involve your will. You see, when I hear the gospel, my mind understands who Jesus is and what he did. My emotions cause me to desire Jesus. But my will has to be surrendered to him. Someone has said, faith is not believing in spite of evidence. Faith is obeying in spite of consequences. John Patton was a missionary to the New Hebrides, and he translated the Bible into their language, and when he was doing so, he found out they didn't have a word for faith. So he was struggling with how to communicate that concept one day, and while he was doing so, one of the natives came up where he was and sat down in the chair next to him and said, it feels so good to rest my entire weight in this chair. And John Patton had his word. Faith is to rest your entire weight in Jesus Christ. If you're sleeping tonight and your house catches on fire and you come out to a second floor window and it's dark and there's smoke everywhere and you can't see anything, but you hear your neighbor down below and he says to you, I can see you. I'm right below you. I'm a firefighter. I got all my firefighter friends here. We got a net down below you. I need you to jump. It would be part of faith for you to believe that that guy's there. It would be part of faith for you to believe that those guys can catch you. But it is the essence of faith for you to jump. And you can talk about how much you believe it, but if you don't jump, you are doomed. And that is a picture of us. We are in a burning world that is destined for hell. And Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again for your sins. And some of us stand here and say, I believe he did that intellectually. Or I'm moved emotionally by what he did. But see, the essence of faith involves my will. And that's when I rest my whole weight on Jesus Christ. That's when I jump into his arms. And that is saving faith. And James says, when you have that real saving faith, it will produce fruit in your life. And then James continues with a question in verse 20. <clears throat> he says, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Now, the word foolish is probably not a good translation because this word is better translated vain. It's a word that means empty or hollow. Who is he calling empty? Well, the guy in verse 14. The guy with an empty profession. The guy who is all talk 
and no substance. And James asks him, are you willing to admit that faith without works is useless? And that word useless is a Greek word that means barren. It's used of money that is drawing no interest. It's used of a field lying fallow. It's producing nothing. It's like the guy in in Jesus' parable who had the one talent and he buried it in the ground. What happened to it? It produced nothing. So Jesus said, are you willing to grasp this? And if so, I want to give you some evidence. And he gives us two illustrations to make his point. The first example is Abraham in verses 21 to 24. Look at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Now he calls Abraham our father. Why? Because Paul said in Romans 4.11 that he is the father of all who believe. So this is an interesting statement. The father of faith was justified by works. So now I'm really confused. Was Abraham saved by his works? You know, when you look at his life, he had a lot of flaws. He's the guy who lied to two separate kings, telling them that his wife was his sister. He's the guy, when he got the promise from God, committed adultery with Hagar, Sarah's maid. So if you look at this guy and say he was saved by works, he's got a lot of problems in his life. So how can James say Abraham was justified by works? Well, let me help you with that. The word justified has two primary meanings. The first meaning is the most familiar one to us. It's a courtroom word. And we stand before God guilty. And God looks at us, and he acquits us. He declares us not guilty. He forgives us on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And then he goes beyond that, and he declares us to be righteous based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the word justified. He declares you forgiven, innocent, and declared righteous in Jesus Christ. Great word. But that's not the only meaning of the word because, interestingly, that word is used of God in the New Testament. For instance, in Romans 3, 4 and Luke 7, 29, we're told that God is justified. What does that mean? Well, it can't mean that God was acquitted. It can't mean that God was forgiven or God was declared righteous. What it means is to be vindicated, to be verified, to be proven Right. Let me give you an example. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus is talking about the way people have accused him. And he talks about John the Baptist. And he said, John the Baptist came, he ate no bread, he drank no wine, and people said he had a demon. And then Jesus said, I came along, and I eat and I drink, and people say, I'm a glutton and a drunkard. So you can't win. And then Jesus says this. Interesting statement. You've probably read it, and maybe you don't understand it. Jesus just says one thing. It sounds like a proverb. He says, wisdom 
is justified by her children. What does that mean? If you go back to Proverbs, you'll find that wisdom is personified in the book of Proverbs. Wisdom is a person, and that's Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is they're criticizing John the Baptist, who is the forerunner. They're criticizing me, Jesus. Wisdom, God's wisdom in his plan, is justified, verified, validated by her children. Who are the children of God's wisdom in the gospel? You and me. Now, I was thinking about this yesterday and came up with an amazing thought to me. And it may not be amazing to you, but it, 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 it's amazing to me. And it's a new thought, and I'm all excited about it. This, this verse tells me that God justified me, and I get the opportunity to justify him. He declares me righteous in the righteousness of Christ, and I get to validate who he is by the fruit that he bears in my life. So the word justified has a secondary meaning, and that meaning is to be verified, validated, proven right. And James is using the word justified that same way. He's saying that Abraham, the father of faith, is validated by the fruit of that faith, his works. And what work was it in his life that validated his faith? Well, he tells us at the end of verse 21, it's when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. Now, why does he pick that work? Well, he goes on to explain it. Look at verse 22. You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. So faith was already there, and it was working with this work, and as a result of the work... His faith was perfected. That word means completed. It blossomed. What faith is he talking about? Look at verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's justification. And he was called the friend of God. Now, I want you to understand something. James chapter 2 and verse 21 happened in Genesis 22. James chapter 2 and verse 23 happened in Genesis 15. So Abraham was justified by faith in Genesis 15 when he believed. And then 30 years later in Genesis 22, that faith was validated, proven to be genuine when he offered up Isaac. I don't know if you know this, but Abraham had a name change. He was originally Abram. And I'm sure the guy got mocked a lot because Abram means exalted father. And he had no kids. So every time he introduced himself, they'd say, what's your name? Exalted father. Uh, How many kids you got? None. Imagine him then running into a guy he hadn't seen for a while. Let's call him Rufus. Rufus says, hey, how you doing? Oh, yeah, you're exalted father with no kids. 
How are you doing? And Abraham has to say, well, God changed my name. Well, what is it now? Abraham. You know what Abraham means? Father of a multitude. I'm no longer exalted father. Now I'm a father of a multitude. How many kids have you got? None. How old are you? A hundred. Must have a young wife. No, she's 90. But Abraham believed the promise of God. And Paul says in Romans 4, he believed in hope against hope. Because he looked at his body as good as dead, and he looked at Sarah's womb, and it was dead. He believed. And he got his miracle child, Isaac. And when Isaac was about 17 years old, God came and he tapped Abraham on the shoulder and he said, I want you to take your son up on the mountain and I want you to kill him, sacrifice him. And Abraham obeyed God and validated the faith that he had in him. When you read it in Genesis 22, I love it because he takes some of his servants with him And he stops at the base of the mountain and he says, uh, we're going to go up and worship and we're going to come back. That's faith. How did he know we were going to come back? Well, we're told in Genesis 11, 19, Abraham believed that God was able to raise the dead. He said, God promised that this kid is going to be the father of nations. Now God's telling me to put a knife in him. So I'm going to put a knife in him, and that's God's problem, how he's going to resolve this, because I guess he's going to raise him from the dead. That's amazing faith. And Abraham went up on the mountain and raised the knife to sacrifice his son, and God stopped him because his faith had been validated. And then verse 24 makes sense in this light. You see that a man is justified by works, and not by faith alone. You see that a man is verified by the works that his faith produces, and not by faith alone, not by the faith that he talked about in verse 14 that only talks and has no reality. You see, Paul and James are not in opposition. They're not facing each other with swords, contradicting each other. What they're doing is they're standing back to back And they're combating against two separate people. One is coming in Romans and saying, I'm saved by works. And Paul is combating that idea. In James, he's combating the guy who says, I'm claiming to have faith, but it hasn't changed one iota in my life. They're dealing with two different opponents from two different angles. And then he gives a second illustration, and that's in verse 25, and that's Rahab. Kind of interesting, he He has this contrast. He deals with a man, then a woman, a Jew, now a Gentile, a patriarch, now a prostitute. Verse 25, in the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Was Rahab saved by good works? No. She was a prostitute. What work is he talking about? Well, you can read it in Joshua chapter 2. 
She had heard about what God was doing through the children of Israel. She believed what God was doing. When the spies showed up in Jericho, she says to them, the Lord your God, he is God in heaven and on earth beneath. And I want you to promise me that when God destroys the city of Jericho, that you will save me and my family. And how do we know her faith was genuine? Because she hid the spies on the roof and she let them down over the wall. Now this passage earlier said that Abraham's faith was perfected or completed or blossomed by what he did. And I want you to show you these two acts really were acts of putting God first. Because what did God want from Abraham? The most important thing in his life, his son. God said, give me your son and show me that I'm number one in your life. With Rahab, what is it? It's her and her family are on the line here. And she's putting herself, her life, on the line along with her family because she believes in God. And God is saying, I'm going to be first in your life. Now, a lot of people have misunderstood this passage. And they've said, see, you're saved by good works. But if you look at these two works, they're not good works. If you extract the faith out of these two examples, what do you have? You have a father killing his son, and you have a woman lying and committing treason against her country. Those are not good works. The only thing that gives them any goodness is the faith that preceded them and motivated them. You see, what James is saying is that genuine saving faith will show itself in obedience. And then he closes with an analogy in verse 26 to wrap it up. He says, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. And that word spirit is the same word as breath, and I prefer to take it that way. He's saying the body without breath is dead. Even so, faith without works is dead. When you watch somebody do CPR on a drowning victim, they're, they're pushing on their chest and they're blowing in their mouth and they're doing all of those things. What are they looking for? They're looking for breath. They're working and working and working and working and they're praying and hoping there'll be some breath. And when they see the breath from that person, they say, he's alive. She's alive. And what James is saying is, when you make a profession of faith and you say, I have accepted Jesus, a lot of people around you are going to say, yeah, I've heard that before. A lot of my friends have said that and it's been a little fad in their life and then they've stopped. I've heard that profession before. And then they look at your life and they see the fruit of your faith. And what do they say? He's alive. She's alive. That verifies, validates the faith that you claim. And so James is saying to you and me this morning, in this passage, do you have saving faith? Have you really entrusted yourself to Jesus Christ? Because if so, people around you ought to be looking at your life and saying, he's alive, she's alive. And if they haven't done that, maybe it's because you have simply believed about Jesus.
you know all the answers, but you don't know Him. Or maybe it's because you're resting on some emotional experience you had one time and calling that salvation. Maybe if you're honest this morning, you would have to say that you are a professor, but not a possessor. This is very dear to my heart because I spent a lot of years professing that I had faith and not having it. And I think there are a lot of people who sit in churches today and play that same game. Know a lot, but don't know Jesus. You're like I was. You're standing on that second floor window saying, I believe a lot of facts about Jesus. And sometimes it really stirs me emotionally. But having never jumped, having never rested your entire weight on Jesus, I challenge you this morning as we close our service. If that's you, jump. As Kwaku said earlier, he will catch you in a way you never anticipated and transform your life. The answer is not work more because you can't. The answer is entrust yourself to Jesus and he will change you from the inside out and produce in your life fruit that is his fruit to his glory. Let's be in an attitude of prayer an attitude of honesty and an attitude of sincerity before the Lord as we close out our service today.